Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. You'll find your place there in 1 John 5 verse 1. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of instruction. Definitions are easy. Synthesis is difficult. It's easy to understand individual ideas on their own, but to see that them in a coherent relationship is not so simple. To put another way, it's easy to scramble eggs. It's harder to make an omelet. This struggle affects our faith. We can define, we can define terms like faith, love, law, the new birth, and so on. But unless we learn to bring them together into a coherent whole, we'll make a mess of them. In this text, John's going to help us. He's going to teach us how to make this dish, so to say, with five ingredients that we've seen before in this letter. But he's going to bring them together, these five ingredients which characterize the Christian life, into a coherent whole. And so if you found your place in 1 John 5, verse 1, would you follow along with me as I read? And I'll read to verse 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us to see how all of these things fit together in a perfect connection, how they come together to make sense of the faith to which you've called us, the faith that we confess, the faith that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you look at this passage, you're going to see, and we're going to see five different themes, I said. Five themes, and I'll list them briefly, are faith, the new birth, love, obedience, and victory. And all of these things characterize the Christian life. Now, not, not one of these is new to us. We've seen them before in 1 John. But here for the first time, John brings them together in a new relationship. We're going to see that relationship in three sets. The first set is faith, love, and the new birth. The second set is love and obedience. And the third set is the new birth again and faith again, but this time with victory. And so let's look first then at faith, love, and the new birth, and let's begin with those easy steps of definition. What is the faith about which John is speaking here in this passage? He says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Here John simply puts it this way, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the substance of our faith. And yet it's more than confessing a few simple words. Because in this simple phrase, John captures all of what we believe as Christians concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. To confess that he's the Christ, the Son of God, 
is to confess that he is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. Who, he is the one who brings all of God's purposes to pass for us. He is the one through whom we are saved, as God promised to his people long ago. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is more than a few simple words. Here, John presents this as evidence of our new birth, that we have been born again. The new birth is God's act of regeneration. He caused us to be born again. He caused us to have a new life. He gave us new life. And this has resulted in our faith. Furthermore, it leads to love. And here, to define love, John is focused on our love for God and our love for one another. That's the love that is front and center here in this text. Now, let's look at the challenge of integrating these things, of thinking about these things together. You see, sometimes, as people who believe in the sovereignty of God, we have a hard time making sense of what the scriptures say about faith, about the necessity of faith and repentance. It is simply true that you must be born again if you are to be saved. And yet it's also true that you must repent and believe if you are to be saved. When we speak about being born again, we're speaking about God's action in our salvation to give us new life, to work in us, to change us, so that we are indeed a new creation. When we speak about faith and repentance, we speak about our action in salvation. But we need to put these things together in a right, logical relationship. These two ideas are inseparable, but they're related. Sometimes we want to so emphasize one that we feel that we must neglect the other. Sometimes we want to turn from one side to the other, emphasizing faith and repentance or emphasizing the new birth and God's sovereignty and our salvation. But we do need to see that these are a coherent whole. And to see them as a coherent whole, we'll see them in their logical relationship. What comes first? Now this is not a what comes first in the course of time question. This is what comes first in terms of logical cause. It's like a blind man who is healed by Christ. The moment Jesus opens his eyes, the moment Jesus gave him sight, that man sees. And yet, there's a logical relationship where Jesus healing that man's sight is the cause of his action of seeing and witnessing the world around him. In the same way, the moment that God gives us new life, it gives rise to a newfound faith in us, one causes the other. God does not cause us to be born again because we chose to believe. We believed because God caused us to be born again. These two things are inseparable. They're related in this way. And John is presenting this to us in a subtle way. He's speaking about a present reality. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you see? Our present belief, the present reality of our faith, is the result of a past action by God. He has caused us to be born again, and the result, the abiding result in our life, is that we continue in faith. Everyone who has been born of God believes that Jesus is the Christ. You can think of this like a birth certificate. 
How do you know that you were born to your parents? You weren't aware at the time. You, you were there, but you can't really say that you were uh, aware of what was going on. You can't remember. But you have evidence that you can see in your life. You see a family resemblance. And we looked at that idea of a family resemblance when we were in 1 John chapter 3. Remember how, God, uh, how John spoke about the children of God acting like children of their heavenly father. Making a practice of righteousness because that's the family trait. Again, in 1 John chapter 4, we saw another proof that we are children of God in our love for one another. Our love for one another, again, reflects the family trait. God is love, and those who are his children love one another. Here, John gives us our faith as the proof that we are children of God. It's like a birth certificate. The way that you know you are children of your, you're a child of your parents, is you pull out your birth certificate and you can show there's my name, there's my father's name, there's my mother's name. In the same way, if I have a true and genuine faith in Christ, I know that I have been born again, that God has caused me to be born again. But we need to see then how this leads to love for one another, how this leads to, leads to brotherly love. Look at what John says in the second half of verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now the language here, I'm going to give you a slightly different translation that's probably similar if you have the King James, similar to what you would read in the New King James or the King James. Everyone who has been born of God and everyone who loves the begetter loves whoever has been begotten of him. See, it's not a common word for father here. It's a word that speaks of the action of becoming a father. Or you might say, you put it another way, everyone who has been born of God and everyone who loves the one who causes them to be born again loves whoever has been born of him. You see, what John is showing us is that our faith and our new birth is not about some kind of individualistic experience. It's about bringing us into a corporate experience as the church of Christ. It's about bringing us into a new family. And if you think about a family, families, ideally, should love one another. Very often, one person in a family might be estranged from another. But we talk about that because it's not supposed to be that way. You don't go on and on about how you're estranged from your childhood friends and how you never talk to them again. But you lament the fact that you may not have correspondence. You may not have uh, a friendship or a, a, a close relationship with a brother or a sister or uh, an aunt or an uncle or someone who's a relation of yours. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we talk about it, because we recognize it's not the ideal. Well, much more in the family of God, our life should be characterized by, one, uh, by love for one another for a number of reasons that we've seen in John's letter so far. But here, for the reason that if God has caused us to be born again, and he has caused others to be born again, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we ought to love one another. That's just the way that families are supposed to operate. We love God. We love those whom he has loved. Remember again what John said in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. God has expressed his love to us in designating us as his children. 
That's true for me and that's true for you. And therefore, if God has so loved you, I should also love you. And so what you start to see then is the relationship between faith and love and the new birth in this simple verse, in verse 1. Now, at the beginning of verse 2, John is going to say, By this we know that we love the children of God. And I want to admit this is a very, very difficult verse for translators to translate. Normally, when John says, by this we know, he's looking backward, not forward. But it's hard to make sense of the logic, and so some translators take this as if it's looking forward. Robert Yarbrough, in his commentary, says that this actually looks forward and backward. You can think of it like a, like a bridge, a one-way bridge that admits traffic in both directions. That's the way this phrase looks like. So let me give you that sense of that first half of verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. Maybe think of it like this. By this we know that we should love the children of God. In other words, by this principle we know that we should love the children of God. What I've just said, what John has just said. That the one who loves the Father loves the ones who are begotten of the Father. And that's the principle that informs our understanding of why we should love one another. But if this uh, phrase does double duty, as Robert Yarbrough suggests, then it also looks forward. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so it introduces us to the next synthesis in John's, um, in John's letter here. Here with the ideas of love and obedience. When we love God, we also obey His commandments. Sometimes we think that the two things are impossible to keep together. That it's impossible to love God and keep His commandments. Or put a different way, it's impossible to love others, I should say, and keep God's commandments. At least that's what our world would have us to believe. They would have us believe that you have to choose between love or the things that God clearly says we ought to do. Now, the world's vision of love, let, let me simply describe it to you. The world would say that what we need to do is simply affirm every decision that a person makes. So, to illustrate it, think about a child who loves to eat sweets, a child who loves to eat junk food. Would her parents, his parents, be loving to simply affirm that child's foolishness and say, well, you can have cake and ice cream for every meal because that's what you like and I love you so much that I'm going to give you whatever you want. That would hardly be a loving thing to do. And yet our world would have us believe in a whole number of ways that that's the way to love others, to simply affirm them in their foolish decisions. When their foolish decisions are contradictory to God's word, to God's desires for us, to what God says is right in, his, in Scripture, say, well, you'll have to choose love. What John is showing us here is that love for God and love for others and obedience to God's commandments are never at odds. These things are always consistent with one another. And we can see this if we just simply look back across all of Scripture. Think about what the two great commandments are. The two great commandments 
The first is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now in Matthew 22, verse 39, Jesus says a second is like it. Not a second is completely different and sometimes at odds with it. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When God gave the law to Israel, those were the two great commandments that he gave them. And if they were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then they needed to learn how to love their neighbors. That was it. Under the new covenant, God gives it to us the same ideas in a slightly different language. And we've read that in 1 John already. That God would have us to believe in Christ, this is 1 John 3.23, and love one another. Faith in Christ and brotherly love, this is what God desires from us. All that he desires from us can be summarized under these two headings. Believing the testimony that we've received concerning the person and work of Christ and living with love for one another. And the world can say, well, you have to choose between one or the other. It's simply not true. It's simply not true. When we love God, we also, you could put it this way, when we love God, we also obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now this idea, the love of God, it could be God's love for us, but more likely in this context, it's our love for God. That this is what love for God is. It's keeping His commandments. It's listening to Him and obeying Him. It's living with faith in Christ, as John has said, and living with love for one another. That is love for God, not the opposite of it, or not something totally distinct from it. And John would have us also understand that God's commandments are not burdensome. Now let me apply what I'm saying because it can fall hard on some of our ears. When we hear these things, we need to resist two uh, tugs, two pulls that exercise their pull upon our lives. The first is perfectionism. We need to resist the pull of perfectionism. Well, what I mean is this. We need to resist our desire to read texts like this and think that what God wants from me is for me to be perfect in every single possible way. And if I fail, then somehow he won't love me anymore. That's not at all what John is saying. That would completely contradict what we read in chapter 1 about the importance of confessing our sin and about living a life of repentance and about trusting in Christ and the propitiation he made for us on the cross. John is fully aware and would have us be fully aware as well that the Christian life is one of slow but sure change where God transforms us by one de- from one degree to another into the image of Christ. That complete and total transformation where we will be made perfect will not happen until Christ's coming. And we need to know that and we need to live realistically in light of that. So resist the pull of perfectionism. You won't be made perfect, I promise you. You won't be made perfect until Christ comes. But you will be Slowly and surely, you will be being perfected until he comes. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're going up, and sometimes it's going to feel like you're going down. But the trajectory across your life will be toward Christ-likeness. Until that day when he comes and there's a sudden rise to perfection. To be be, be like him as he is. That's the character of 
Christian sanctification that John has presented to us. And we need to interpret this text in light of that. The other draw, the other thing that we need to avoid is the desire to indulge our slothful negligence. That is the idea that uh, Paul expresses in Romans when he says, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? Of course, Paul answers that question, may it never be. For some of us, perfectionism is not a threat. For some of us, we might think, well, there's grace. So what difference does it make if I indulge every single sinful desire? And we also need to be shaken by John's letter. John would have us understand that the Christian life should be characterized by growth. It should be characterized by a desire to keep God's commandments. And again, I remind you, what are his commandments in summary form? Believe in Christ and love one another. We should have that desire and that aim in our life to pursue those objectives as faithful as we can by God's grace trusting in his power to sanctify us according to his will, according to the pace that he desires, but making that our aim in our life. So, um, so we need to resist these two things. We need not to judge ourselves according to uh, this, this thought that we need to be perfect, but we also need to resist that desire to simply throw up our hands in despair and give up and say it doesn't really matter anyway. Rather, the, the, where we need to set ourselves and, and rest is in the knowledge that God, by his grace, does this work through us, through the means that he's given us. What are the means that he's given us by which he sanctifies us? His word, the fellowship that we enjoy with one another, prayer, these things that we do together as we come to his word, as we go to him in prayer, as we encourage one another and build one another up. These are the means by which God slowly but surely changes us to be like Christ. So we avail ourselves of those things so that he might make us more like Christ. Now, his commandments are not burdensome. And let me help you to see this again by way of an illustration. You see, when we think about um, the burdens of life, the, the, the difficulties of life, say waking up in the morning, my burden would be to get up and actually do something. My inclination, my desire, is to sit in my couch with my cup of coffee and not move until I need to fill the coffee up again and then get back on my couch and sit and do nothing. My inclination is to be a lazy bum, right? That's my natural desire, and so it feels like a burden to be industrious, as God would have me to work, as God would have me to do. But when the day comes to an end, if I indulged that desire, I will fall into a malaise of self-pity and grief. I will feel as if I accomplished nothing, and I will feel like the day was a waste. I will feel burdened and weighed down. But if, on the other hand, I get up, and I work as God made me to work, and I'm industrious, and I accomplish something, I may be tired at the end of the day, but I won't feel like doing that thing was a burden at all. It was freeing. It brought me joy. It made me feel like I, I did something. And that's a positive reality. God doesn't command us to do things that are meant to weigh us down and make our life difficult. We saw that exemplified this morning when we, when we thought about the importance of the Sabbath in the life of Israel. God didn't give Israel a Sabbath rest 
to make their life difficult and miserable. He gave them a day off. God invented the weekend. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, God's commandments are not burdensome. And so he called his people through Isaiah to call the Sabbath a delight. And we need to see his commandments in that vein. They feel like burdens sometimes because of our natural inclination as sinners. But when we look at them from another perspective, we realize that all of God's commands for us are in fact good. They're for our good and they're for his glory. We ought to embrace them with that perspective. It will never put us to come back to the theme. It will never put us in a situation where we have to choose between love and obedience. For God's commandments can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. True love fulfills all that God desires from us. Well, this brings us to our final point then. And here John brings us back in some respect to where we started, although we feel like we're in a new place. For here he brings back the themes of the new birth and faith. But instead of going through the new birth and faith and love, here he brings us to the idea of the new birth and faith and victory. In verse 4 we read, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Look how often John speaks about this idea of overcoming the world. We see it in the word overcome and also in the word victory. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so John wants us to see that our faith and our new birth also leads to this, to victory in this life and in the life to come. You could think of it simply as overcoming as the idea of gaining victory. And then you see how it all comes together and how that theme is repeated over and over again. Now, we need to remind ourselves the way that John speaks about the world. The world is a place in opposition to God and his people. The world is a place that has lustful desires and selfish desires. It's a place that's passing away, John has told us. It's a place that is ruled by conflict and hatred. It may claim that it's a place of love, but it's not really a place of love. It's a place that is ruled by conflict and enmity. In this life, we find ourselves engaged in a battle against the world. A battle with eternal consequences. But we need to understand the nature of that battle. To understand what John is saying to us here. The battle is between God and the chief enemy, the devil. It's between God's people and the world out of which he's called us. But it's not a battle that is fought with swords and shields or with guns or any other kind of earthly weapon. It's a battle that is fought through faith. And in fact, we need to understand that this itself is the battle. Now, think of this uh, from the context of an actual war and the way that a general might manage his army. In any battle, it's necessarily necessary to properly define the objective. What are we seeking? What is a general seeking when he lays out his battle plans? 
In some cases, an army may seek to advance and to gain ground. In the other, other cases, it may simply seek to starve its enemy of resources. In some cases, it may seek to win in a war of attrition. The generals and soldiers who identify the correct objective will be able to pursue it to victory. What is our objective in this life as Christians? What is our objective in this battle? Let me tell you what it's not. The objective is not Christendom. That is an earthly kingdom that is ruled by Christian kings or governments. That's not the goal. The objective is not worldly comfort and safety so that we might be free from any opposition in this world. The objective is not a culture that is so saturated with Christian ideals that you can't distinguish between a believer and an unbeliever who may be your neighbor. Some of these may be good consequences of a genuine revival that is marked by the progress of the gospel as men and women come to faith. Nevertheless, the objective is simply this, that we endure faithful to the end, that we hold fast, that we do not lose our faith. That's what John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What does the world want to take from us? Our faith. What would the world have us do? Deny our faith. Reject our faith. Turn from what we believe in some way. Accept some alternate version, some sanitized version that is acceptable to the world of Christian faith. But the victory that we gain in this life by God's grace is that we hold fast to our faith even when the world tries to dissuade us, tries to take it from us. And again, this is a sign that we have been born of God. Remember the logical relationship of the new birth. It's the new birth that leads to faith. And if we have been born of God, then God will sustain us faithful to the end. So we know that our faith will not fail. This is that victory, that we remain faithful till the coming of our Lord or until he takes us home. So John brings us back full circle to where we began. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The one who is born of God is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. The one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And therefore, my message to you is simple. Be assured and hold fast. Be assured that if we are born of God, that God has promised to preserve us faithful to the end. The one who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The one who has been born of God overcomes the world. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. Be assured of this. And therefore, as the author of Hebrews tells us, let us hold fast our confession. There in Hebrews 10 taken from verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will hold us fast as you've promised, knowing that you will certainly do this as you have declared in your holy word that it is your will. And so we pray, seeking to pray in accordance with your will, that you indeed will preserve us faithful to the end. Father, 
We pray that anyone here tonight who may be suffering under the condemnation of a condemning heart would be assured of your grace and your pardon and your love for them because of what Christ has done for them. Father, we pray for anyone here who is struggling in a different way with a malaise or a despair, feeling like they can't pursue uh, the way that you set out for us. We pray that you would show them that this too is something that we do by your grace, that you will work your sanctifying work in our lives through the means that you have given us. For all of us, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to endure and to hold fast and to trust you, trust your Son, believing that indeed he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.